Revelation chapter 1. Last Saturday was not only my birthday, it was also my 29th anniversary of pastoring here in Los Angeles. During that time, my focus has been to preach going verse by verse through the Bible. And while I haven't preached on every book in the Bible, I have avoided the book of Revelation and, and was actually quite pleased to do so. felt I was in good company. Uh, Martin Luther said, my spirit cannot adjust itself to this book. Uh, John Calvin did not write on the book of Revelation, although he wrote on the rest of the books of the New Testament. One writer in a foreword to a commentary on Revelation said, readers of the book of Revelation are either mesmerized or mystified by it. The mesmerized come up with such startling interpretations that the mystified often conclude that sober-minded Christians should leave the book well alone. Over 20 years ago, I did go through the first three chapters of Revelation, but went no further. But if we take seriously what Paul wrote to Timothy, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, then the book of Revelation is useful for us, and we should study this book. Today we will begin our study of the book by looking at some background information, which I think will be essential to our study, but hopefully will help us as we begin to open up this book. I'm sure that you know this, but I will just tell you at the beginning, there is more than one interpretation of the book of Revelation. There are four main approaches. There are others, but there are four major ones that people usually identify. The first is the idealist approach, which sees the book as purely symbolic and that it's really talking about the conflict between good and evil, this cosmic battle, and it uses all these apocalyptic images to describe that. It sees no reference to any specific places or persons or events in this book. We do not hold to that. Then there is the historicist approach in which the book is seen as a book of prophecy of church history. That is, from the, the ascension of Christ to the second coming, uh, people have seen the book of Revelation as telling us what will happen in between those two times. Also do not accept this. Then there is the futurist approach, which sees the material in chapters 4 through 19 as being the events which happened before the second coming. I don't hold to this view. I hold to the fourth view, and hopefully as we go through this book, uh, you will see why. The final view is called the preterist approach, and it holds that most of this book, well, yeah, most of it is a prophecy, and that the prophecy was fulfilled in the first century A.D. Specifically, many, if not most, of the prophecies in this book have to deal with the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD. But we will come to that as we go through it. But it immediately it raises certain questions. Which approach is correct? And how do we know which approach to take? What are the keys that help us unlock this difficult book? Well, I hope to give you some help today in that direction and, and sort of prepare us as we launch into our study. First of all, who wrote this book? Well, you look in the first verse and you see that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show his servants, 
what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. While there is some debate, I think it is clear from this book that John the Apostle wrote the book of the Revelation. And if you want to compare his writings, the man who wrote the Gospel of John also wrote the book of the Revelation. We find expressions like the Lamb of God, uh, the Word, Witness, which are common only uh, to these two books, to the Gospel of John and the book of the Revelation. John identifies himself throughout this book as John. He doesn't tell us any more than that. He doesn't give a title. Uh, I think he assumes that the people who will read this letter know who it is that is writing, that he is an apostle, he has authority. Where was it written? Well, we are told in verse number 9 of chapter 1 that John was on the island of Patmos. It's a small island uh, located between uh, Greece and Turkey in the Aegean Sea. It's about 65 miles from Ephesus. That's the nearest city to it. Um, there's evidence, archaeological evidence, that Patmos and the islands around it, these tiny little islands, were used by local governors as a place to send uh, people who disrupted uh, the local peace, if you wish. That These are people who are socially disruptive. We need to get rid of them, put them out of town. And so they were put on these islands. And apparently this was the case with John because we see in verse number one that he is there he was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That is, because of his preaching, uh, he has been put here by the local political authorities. To whom was this book written? Well, this is mentioned again at the beginning of the letter. If you look in verse number four of chapter one, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then if you look at verse number 11 of chapter one, uh, he heard a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna. Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then if you look at chapters 2 and 3, we have specific addresses to each of these seven churches. There's a section for each of the seven churches in which uh, well, a message is sent to them uh, through John. These churches are, were seven major cities in Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey today. They were connected by a semicircular road that if you start at Ephesus, and if, actually if you follow the order in which John gives them, you make sort of a semicircle. You go up north and then you start to go east and then you turn south. These were seven major cities which were the major postal uh, places or stations uh, at that time. If you wanted to get your mail, you went to one of these seven cities. And so as John writes this letter, it is sent to these seven churches which are located in major population centers in Asia Minor. Now, there, are, there were more than seven churches in Asia Minor, but there was a purpose to the number seven, as we will see as we go through the book of Revelation. 
that John wrote to Asia Minor is significant for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, he worked there. But Asia Minor, after the destruction of Jerusalem, became the center for Christian activity in the ancient world. Jerusalem had been the mother church, but then Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD. And the focus shifts to Ephesus, actually, and to Asia Minor. This became the center of Christian activity at that point. It was the most influential center of Christianity during that time. It's also important because Asia was the center for emperor worship. uh, And nowhere in the empire was it more popular than in Asia Minor. After Julius Caesar was assassinated in 29 BC, a temple honoring him as a god was built in Ephesus, in Asia Minor. Well, after him, the Caesars that followed him, they didn't wait till they were dead to be proclaimed gods. They proclaimed themselves to be gods. It began with his nephew Octavian, who took the name Augustus, in English August, uh, a title of supreme majesty, dignity, and reverence. Among his titles, he was called the Son of God. He was proclaimed the Savior of the world. And inscriptions were found which said, Salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus. And there is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. Does that sound familiar? And these are the things that we attribute to the person of Jesus Christ. This was the position that the Caesars took after Augustus. That Caesar was God. Caesar was Savior. Caesar was the only Lord. And it could be summed up in the statement, Caesar is Lord. Now, when Christians came along, the problem was not that they worshipped Jesus. People could care less who you worship. That everybody had a different God. That was not the problem. The problem was, and the reason why they were persecuted and killed, was because they worshipped Jesus and him only. They would not worship Caesar. And because they would not worship Caesar, this was seen as treason. The witness of the apostles and the early church was nothing less than a declaration of war against the pretensions of the Roman state, in which they said, our, our leader, our emperor is God. And the church came along and said, no, he's not. There's only one God. It's been revealed in Jesus Christ. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, which we read some time ago, uh, the enemy's charge about the Christians, interestingly enough, uh, in Asia Minor, They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Years later, in the second century, the captain of the police uh, pleaded with Polycarp. He was the bishop of Smyrna. And he asked him, what harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord? Polycarp refused and he was burned at the stake. And thousands of our brothers and sisters in Christ died precisely for this issue. And again, for for an outside observer, maybe even for us, sadly enough, we may say, well, listen, this just looks like a clash between an egomaniac who wants to be, who wants people to see him as God and people who won't humor him. You know, why not just humor him? You know, he's, he's obviously got real problems if he wants to be called God. So why not just humor this poor, sick individual? There's much more going on than that. 
It is the kingdom of darkness seeking to overthrow the kingdom of light. It is Caesar as Lord seeking to overthrow Jesus as Lord. John sought to convey that in his letter. The next question is, when was this book written? And this may be the key issue as far as us understanding this book. There are a lot of arguments. We have several books in the library, if you want to borrow them, that deal with the dating of the book of Revelation. I will simply tell you this. There are two basic positions. The first is that the, the letter to the seven churches was written about 95 A.D. during the reign of the emperor Domitian. I do not believe this is a correct position. Uh, it is based on the testimony of one person who lived a hundred years later, who wrote a hundred years later, uh, Irenaeus, who was the bishop of Lyon in uh, southern Gaul. Um, what he wrote, interestingly enough, is very much ambiguous and subject uh, to being translated in a number of ways. One of the things that he says, though, historically, that we can say is inaccurate is that John was persecuted by the emperor Domitian. And we know historically that there were no persecutions of Christians under that emperor. The second possibility is the one which I take, and that is that this letter was written between late 64 and 67 AD. It was after persecution had broken out. The first major persecution of the church led by the emperor Nero. And it was before Jerusalem would be destroyed. And John seeks to address both issues. The issue of being persecuted and the issue of, the church, or of Jerusalem uh, being destroyed. The importance, I think, of the dating of this letter will become clear as we go along. At least that is my hope. But I, I would point out something to you, and I don't know if you caught it. If you look at the first verse here in Revelation 1. that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. In other words, what John is writing here is not something that's going to happen hundreds of years, even thousands of years later. This must soon take place. And those events did, in fact, take place in 70 AD. By the way, if you go to the end of the letter in chapter 22, once again, uh, John is told, don't seal up this letter. Don't seal the scroll up. Because what is going to happen here will happen soon. And for me, I think that's sort of the clincher that this is something that was written in 64 to 67 AD about something that would happen, and in fact did happen, uh, the death of Nero, the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, and all those things that happened in that decade. If you want to talk about this afterwards, we can certainly do that. What is the purpose of this book? Well, what I hope to do with the rest of the sermon is to show you some principles for reading this book. And if we follow these principles, I think we will then begin to understand what the purpose of the book is. First of all, the book of Revelation was given to reveal. Reveal is the word of the word revelation. The word in Greek is ap apocalypsis. Uh, in English we say apocalypse. 
Uh, in fact, uh, some translations of the Bible, some scholars refer to this book not as Revelation, but as the Apocalypse. Apocalypse means to remove a veil or a covering so that what is behind the veil or the covering can be revealed. The purpose of this book is to remove a veil or covering so as to reveal to us, to uncover to us what is behind it. What John seeks to do here is to show God's people what must soon take place. And this is done in a way that perhaps we're not comfortable with because the book gives its message by using symbols, pictures, uh, sometimes very startling images, things that are not as direct as we might want them to be. There is a blessing, by the way, that is pronounced on those who read and those who hear and keep the word of this prophecy. Which indicates to me, rather strongly, that we should approach this book with the expectation that God intends to make its message clear to us. It is not something that is to remain hidden. It is the revelation, the revealing. If you wish, the great reveal in modern pop culture terms. This is it in which John is going to tell God's people what is about to happen. So it is to reveal. Second of all, Revelation is a book that is to be seen. Um, this is a book filled with images. And if, if you look uh, in verse number two um, uh, of chapter one, who testifies that John testifies to everything he saw. And, and this comes up over and over again. He saw the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. We usually think in terms of hearing, not in terms of seeing. Um, verse number 11, which I read to you a minute ago, uh, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Revelation is a book of symbols in motion. Why use symbols? Because John, through these symbols, is able to say something very profound. Things are not what they seem. They are not what they seem. The church in Smyrna, we find in chapter 2, appears to be poor, but it is rich. The church in Sardis has a reputation for life, but it is dead. The church in Laodicea thinks itself rich and self-sufficient, but it is destitute and naked. The beast seems invincible, able to conquer the saints by killing them. But their faithfulness, even to death, proves that their victory over the dragon who empowered the beast will in fact take place. What appears to the human eye on, on the plane of human history is not the way things really are. What appears to be weak, helpless, hunted, poor, defeated, Christians, the congregations of God's people, Jesus' faithful servants, prove to be the true overcomers who participate in the triumph of the land. One commentary in the book of Revelation is entitled More Than Conquerors. Unfortunately, when many people read this book of Revelation, they come away with a rather pessimistic and defeatist attitude. And I think they have misread the symbols that John has given us. The symbols are primarily visual. 
But the big, this raises the big question, how are we supposed to know what the symbols symbolize? Okay. When you use metaphors, analogy, simile, the reader needs to be able to have sort of a direct connection between both the symbol, the metaphor, the analogy, and the thing to which it is referring. Because otherwise, it means nothing at all. The symbol means nothing at all. What is interesting, when you use symbolism or analogy and you compare it to something else, these two things may be different in nine different areas, but similar in one. It is that one area of similarity that the author is trying to bring out. But that sort of raises problems when we get into the issue of symbolism. I hope we will be able to work our way through it. But it explains why there are so many different interpretations of this book. Some have argued, by the way, that John used apocalyptic language, something that was common from about the second century B.C. to the end of the first century A.D. Um, such apocalyptic, apocalyptic language used uh, unexplained and unintelligible symbols. In other words, the purpose of the writer was almost to deliberately confuse the reader. Such writings tended to be pessimistic, they saw the end of the world as coming, and that, 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 that the only hope for humanity was the end of the world. Um, and their interest was more about the end of things. This is not true with John. He does not write this in a pessimistic tone. He isn't talking about the end of the world. He's not concerned with last things. He's concerned with one thing, I would say, and that is that his readers know how to live their lives. His concern is ethical, not eschatological, not the end of things. But if John is writing to reveal, then why would he use symbols that we cannot understand? He didn't. He used symbols that, in fact, we can understand. We just have to know, to know where to look for, for the reference, the things to which he's referring, his symbols. I think his initial audience did, and... It requires work on our part to understand what he was referring to. So, which brings up the third principle of reading the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation makes sense only in light of the Old Testament. If you do not know the Old Testament, you will not understand the book of Revelation correctly. And many people in our generation have interpreted the book of Revelation by seeing John's symbols as referring to things today. And that's why you have just all these bizarre interpretations that come about. No, John was writing to people in the first century, between 65 and 70 AD. He was using symbols that they could understand. They could understand them because they had the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures. And I think without question, when we go through the book, even those of you who might be skeptical about this, you will see things you're like, oh, I know that from the Old Testament. For example, in chapter 22, we read about the tree of life. Well, the last time we read about the tree of life was in Genesis chapter 3, but we have read about it somewhere else. The ancient serpent who deceived Eve in the garden now wages war against the woman, her son, and her other children. The plagues that struck the Egyptians who persecuted God's people strikes the church's persecutors. And that's why in chapter 15, the deliverance of the church is marked by singing 
the song of Moses from the book of Exodus. Now, there's several difficulties, though. First of all, we don't find a lot of direct quotations from the, book, uh, from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. We do have some, for example, the song of Moses. But the images are there, and, and the, the allusion to them is found throughout. So we read about Elijah and his nemesis, Jezebel. We read about Balaam, who masterminded the seduction of Israel. God's temple, which was served by his kingdom of priests. God's wine press of wrath. Jerusalem is the city of God. These things we know from the Old Testament. However, we need to understand that John does not cut and paste images from the Old Testament and put them in his book, the book of Revelation. You know how today with computers you cut and paste. That's not what John does. He brings images over which are recognizable. So we can recognize them. But they've been modified a bit. They've been recombined into new configurations. Because something has happened between the Old Testament and the book of Revelation. And that is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has come. He has been put to death. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. And now he sits in heaven. That has changed things. So the images, we still see them. They are recognizable, but... The dynamic has changed somewhat, and we need to take that into account. And so what we must do is to immerse ourselves, or as Tom would say, soak ourselves in the Old Testament, in the imagery of the Old Testament, but then also pay attention to the way that these images have been transformed so that they can express this truth that the kingdom of God will be victorious. The fourth principle in going through Revelation is the place of numbers. And, and boy, you find numbers all throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, 7, 10, and 12, and their multiples seem to pop up uh, everywhere we turn. And rather than give you a list of how these are used, I just want you to be aware of the importance of numbers. And the fact that their symbolism can be flexible, and, and we need to really be careful because it can throw people. So, for example, if you look at verse number 4 here of chapter 1, um, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth so here we have God the Father we have God the Son but then we have seven spirits which instead of having a triune or a, trinity, a trinitarian view of things would seem to indicate that there are nine gods God the Father, God the Son, and then seven spirits. Is John proposing that we change our view of the Trinity? Not at all. In fact, the NIV has a footnote in which it refers to it as the sevenfold spirit, which I think is, is a very good way to put it. If you read what John says here in the book of Revelation, whenever he is referring directly to the spirit, he uses the singular. Okay. So, for example, verse number 10. I, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. Okay. And then seven times in chapters 2 and 3, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay. So John is Trinitarian. He hasn't changed his view of the nature of God. Then why does he speak about the seven spirits of God? Seven 
symbolizes fullness and completeness. So in chapter 4, verse 5, as he describes the throne in heaven, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. In chapter 5, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We should understand and try to remember, I'll try to remind you as we go along, that numbers are intended to convey, you know, without getting a literal connection, between the, you know, what is, is said, seven for example, and the precise measurement. Okay. They are trying to convey a truth without us being overly literal. So there aren't seven eyes, there aren't seven spirits. This is speaking of the fullness and the completeness of the spirit. In the same way, by the way, Satan will be referred to as one who has seven horns. Speaking of, of the completeness of his evilness, if you wish. Anyway, we will get to numbers as we go through. Number five, the fifth principle. The book of Revelation was written for a church under attack. The violence of the images in this book can be shocking and startling and have, in fact, been described as unpleasant and repulsive, particularly when it describes what God will do to his enemies. But this view really fails to take into account something really important. This, church was, this book was written to a church under attack. And its purpose was to reveal to those people under attack the things that must soon take place. Not to satisfy their curiosity about the future. Oh, I wonder what's going to happen in the future. It's, we are being persecuted now. What are we supposed to do? It sought to fortify the people of God with hope and with a call for holy living. The struggle of the church is seen in each of the seven churches that are addressed. Each has a different struggle. But at the end of each, we find a promise to him who overcomes. And so the book closes with a portrayal of final victory. People will eat from the tree of life. They will escape the second death. They will share Christ's authority of the nations. They will be pillars in God's temple, inscribed with God's name. Now, the precise nature of overcoming each church is different, and it depends on the challenge that each church faces. Some of them face the problem in terms of unity, that there is a threat to unity. Some face external persecution. Others face the pressure to blend, to syncretize with local pagan beliefs. Others were pressured to compromise with the materialism of the surrounding culture. The church's ultimate enemy, the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, is portrayed as incredibly cunning. And this is symbol, uh, symbolized by his seven heads. And from chapters 12 to chapter 19, we have the various assaults that come on the church. Physical threat, the beast from the sea. Spiritual deception, the beast from the land. And then material seduction, the harlot, the whore of Babylon. And each of these are things that are pressuring the church to no longer say Jesus is Lord, 
and to walk away from the kingdom of light. In the face of these attacks, God's people are called on to endure and to stay pure. And I would say that the message of Revelation remains true for us even today. Because the enemy attacks ruthlessly, and in their time it employed the might of the Roman Empire, the people of God were called to endure persecution. Some of them were going to die. Some of them were going to be martyred. And John says they are to endure. The answer is not to escape, to, to join a monastery somewhere, to remove oneself from the culture. No, the answer is to be a witness. And in fact, interestingly enough, the word for martyr in Greek is the word witness. We think of a martyr as someone who is put to death for his or her faith. Originally, it meant someone who was a witness. That the Christians of the first century were called to be witnesses. And it is because John is a faithful witness that he is on the Isle of Patmos when he writes this letter. By the way, he is then the perfect man to write this book. Because if he wasn't being persecuted... Then, and he says to people, oh, by the way, you're going to be persecuted, but don't worry about it. You will, you know, endure, you know, purify yourselves and God will take care of you. And people are like, well, what do you know about persecution? John knows what he's writing about because he has suffered as one who is a witness. But it isn't simply the attacks of the enemy which are ruthless. It is also the subtle slipping in under the radar in which the enemy comes into the camp. Because of this subtlety, the bride of Christ, the church, through lies and pleasant compromises, is slowly but surely being led astray. And John says, you must stay pure. For those being persecuted, you must endure. For those of you who are being tempted, you must remain pure. The dragon's assault on the church comes in different forms from different quarters, in different times, in different places. But always, in every age and place, the church is under attack. Let me ask you today, do you feel like you're under attack? We may not. And there the subtlety, the subtlety of the enemy should be taken into account. Uh, we have a, a magazine that we get, The Voice of the Martyrs, about our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering persecution. We think, oh, the church is under attack over there. Uh, the church is under attack everywhere. It always has been and it will be till Jesus returns. And John writes this book that we might understand the nature of those tax, attacks and that we might do the right thing, which is to endure and to stay pure. Number six, and this we've already talked about, so I won't say that much about it. The book of Revelation concerns what must soon take place. Uh, from the very first verse, uh, two verses later in verse number three, the time is near, to chapter 22, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits and the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. In contrast to Daniel, who, by the way, was given a prophecy and then he's told, seal up this scroll because it's not yet time. It is not yet time for this to be fulfilled. Uh, there would be a long time before the fulfillment 
of Daniel's prophecy. Uh, John is told, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. And so we need to understand that this book had meaning for the people to whom it was addressed. It's not a set of prophecies about the distant future, which has no connection to them. Um, no, it's written to seven churches in Asia Minor and to the other believers there as well. As we saw in our study of 1 Corinthians, although the letter was written by Paul to the Corinthians, we need to understand that, we who are on the outside looking in can learn from the things that are being said. So also we can learn from the book of Revelation and understand that there are forces which war against us, which are seeking to destroy us as individuals and as a church, and that we should hear John's call to endure and to stay pure. And the last thing that is the principle here that will help us as we read this is that the victory belongs to God and to his Christ. One of the important patterns that we should see in this book is that there's always a movement from conflict to victory. Conflict to victory. And then we're told who the victors are. The book of Revelation is permeated with worship. And in fact, one author has said that the book of Revelation is in fact a worship service. Throughout this book, we will find songs of praise and celebration. And, and the praise is not simply to worship God for his attributes, his creative power, as we have done today. We sing holy, holy, holy as we sing of God's holiness. I sing the mighty power of God. We speak of his creative power, his sustaining power. But here, although that is a part of it, the emphasis is on God's victory through the Lamb over the enemies which threaten the church and which challenge God's place as God. And so these scenes of worship and songs of praise celebrate the victory of Jesus, the Lamb. And there's real irony there, by the way. Who would expect a Lamb and a Lamb that has been killed to be victorious? And yet that's what we find. We see the defeat of Satan and his enemies. We see the vindication of God's martyrs and the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth. And all, although, and this is important, although the enemy's power is revealed, it is revealed in all its hideousness, one writer puts it as the whole satanic horror, the last word is not the destructive power of Satan. It isn't about the conflict. The last word is the joyful celebration of those who have been redeemed by Jesus. It is conflict and then victory. I look forward to studying the book of Revelation with you, but I do admit apprehension as we begin. Um, the task ahead, I think, will be difficult. That's okay. That's fine. I think it should be humbling. That would be appropriate. Perhaps in other portions of scripture we feel much more self-confident to understand, well, I understand that. And when we come to Revelation, boy, <laughs> we're on our knees because what is being said here? And so there is apprehension and dread at that. But also because we live in a time, sadly enough, in which Christians separate themselves over the issue of prophecy. That seems to be the dividing line 
you know, people saying, well, I'm of this persuasion and you're of that persuasion, and therefore we can't go to the same church, we can't fellowship together. As, as I've said, I believe the book of Revelation is a book of prophecy that has been fulfilled. You may not agree with me, but I hope that as we go through, that I will make a case for it. But beyond all that, what I want you to understand is that this is a book that tells us the church is under attack. It always has been and always will be. That there are various types of attack. Not just simply the frontal assault. There are victims, if you wish. That's perhaps the wrong word. There are people who will die. People who will die for the faith. People whose lives will be destroyed as they stand for the faith. But ultimately, the victory belongs to Jesus Christ. I pray that God, who caused this book to be written, will give us understanding as we go through it together. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are human. We are afflicted with idle curiosity far too often. And this book, for all its difficulties, has been mesmerizing to many who are very curious. If this is the revelation, the uncovering, the unveiling, we ask that we would see what is behind. We would understand what John is saying. And then not simply understand, but put into practice that we would endure, that we would stay pure, and we would understand that there is a war going on, a war whose victory is sure. Jesus and the kingdom of light will indeed be victorious. May we be humble. May our hearts be knit together as we study this book as a congregation. Now I ask that your grace, your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We pray for safety with the rains. Some have a day off tomorrow for the extra rest. We thank you that we could meet together today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.